Gresham College presents Robert Hooke Tercentennial Studies by Professor Michael Cooper, Professor Michael Hunter, Felix Fryer, and John Smedley. My name is Michael Cooper. I'm one of the two editors of the book which is uh, here this evening. And it gives me great pleasure, really, to say some words of thanks to the organizations and the individuals who have done so much over the last few years to support the work on Robert Hooke that has been done. The book that uh, is published today is compiled from papers that were presented at the Robert Hooke Conference at the Royal Society in 2003, 300 years after his death. And that conference could not have taken place without the financial and other support of three organizations. In the first place, Gresham College, where Hooke was professor of geometry. They have supported all the activities on, on Hooke for the last 10 years through a succession of provosts, and I'm grateful to all of them and to the chairman and the council of Gresham College for their financial and moral and other kinds of support which, although aren't seen, are essential to an activity such as the one we're celebrating this evening. Then there's the Royal Society, who also contributed towards the conference by making their facilities available and for providing for the book various pieces of uh, evidence of what Hooke had done. The Royal Academy of Engineering was also a supporter and a sponsor of the conference, and we're grateful to the Royal Academy of Engineering as well. A word about the book itself. It has been a pleasure for Michael Hunter and myself to work with the 16 contributors to the volume. And what has struck me about the contents of the book are, is its diversity. And Hooke has been approached from many different directions by various specialists. And together, I think, they throw light on Hooke, which not only shows him to have been a significant figure in 17th century science, more so than has been generally thought, but it's also shown there's a lot more to be done in order to be able to understand him. Another aspect of the book that I have found particularly interesting is the fact that it contains papers by people who have actually taken it upon themselves to do the sort of things that Hooke did, to follow his experiments, to repeat them, to try to understand how he came to the conclusions he did. And by carrying out these experiments, I think one does understand far more about his mechanical sense of the way the universe worked. Incidentally to that, I also believe that there's a lot of um, useful education for schools here if they could only take, a, take it upon themselves as part of the teaching of science, to perform some of the rather simple experiments that the 17th century scientists performed. I think that would lead to a greater understanding of what they did, why they did it, and why it was important to do it. We're astonished to see here tonight the Hook manuscript, which has received a lot of attention in the press, it has come to light recently, and it will be auctioned by Bonhams, and we'll hear a little bit more about that later. It has given me hope, 
the appearance of this manuscript has given me hope that Hooke's survey books, which he kept meticulously and daily during his years as city surveyor from 1666 to 1674, and that he refused to hand in to the Corporation of London at the end when he was ordered to do so. I can think of one or two good reasons why he refused to hand the books in to the Corporation of London. The two other surveyors handed theirs in, and they were transcribed in the 17th century, and facsimiles of the transcripts were published by the London Topographical Society uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. But Hooke's books were never handed in and are lost. It gives me a faint glimmer of hope that they might come to light soon. If they do, they are likely to be far more substantial in bulk than the manuscript that's just come to light. And although they will tell us a lot about London and its rebuilding, I think they will also tell us things about Hook that we have not yet fully understood. So on that optimistic note, I'd like to end by introducing the next speaker, Michael Hunter, my co-editor. And through various subtle ways over the last few years, Michael has guided me into the proper way of looking at history and even writing about it. And if any historians read what I have written and feel uncomfortable, that is nothing to the discomfort they would have felt had I not been under Michael Hunter's influence. <laughs> so I personally acknowledge the help that Michael has given me in implicit ways through the last five years. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank, thank you. Um, and you've covered most of the points, I think, that need to be made about the book. Um, I would just add a couple of small points, uh, and then I also might just say a very brief word about the, the new manuscript. First, I think that the book illustrates the sheer range of Hooke's activities, and one theme that gains, has quite a lot of attention in it is Hooke's architectural work. There are three important essays on different aspects of that within the book. In fact, um, within the, the, the recent past, there's been a further contribution on Hooke's architecture of a more speculative um, and perhaps slightly more spectacular kind in an essay by Giles Worsley. Um, which has suggested that Hooke might have been the architect of a number of really major buildings in late 17th century England, including such buildings as Petworth House, which I have to say I looked at with new eyes have, on the last time I visited it um, in the light of the article. It's very sad to have to record that the author of the article, Giles Worsley, died tragically and, and very young in his 40s, uh, just at Christmas time. Um, and so that was one of the very last of his um, contributions to scholarship. The other thing I was going to say about the book is echoes a point that we made in the introduction about the direction in which Hooke studies should now be going. And having at one point believed that Hooke interests were so wide that it was impossible for anyone to synthesize them. It was partly for that reason that um, a few years ago uh, 
Mike Cooper, Jim Bennett, Lisa Jardine and I published a joint book on Hook in which we each took a section and dealt with it separately. I've now become slightly more optimistic that some great synthesis may be possible. And I think it would be a synthesis of the kind that, as we suggest in the introduction to the book, was um, foreseen by Louise Patterson, one of the pioneering Hook scholars in the post-war years, who thought that what was needed was a, a, a view of Hook's synthesis which would see the universe not only as a self-regulating mechanism, but also as, as an evolving one, thereby bringing together his geological interests with the cosmological interests which um, he shared with, with Newton. I just briefly wanted to mention the, the, the Bonhams manuscript. I mean, there are a handful of other important manuscripts of Hook which deserve attention, perhaps particularly the main Hook manuscript at the Royal Society, classified papers 20, which still has a treasure trove of material that's never been properly exploited. But the Bonhams manuscript is a real eye-opener, partly, as Mike has already indicated, because of the um, amazing fact that such an important document should come to light so unexpectedly in the 21st century, and it gives us hope that there are many more such treasures hidden in attics awaiting discovery. It also is an extraordinary document because of some of the things that it says and, and, and um, aspects of Hook that it throws light on. And as someone who is interested in Boyle as well as Hook and in their mutual relationship, I was very interested by the just tiny little nuggets of information it contains about Hook's attitude towards his mentor, Boyle, who had um, given him his first scientific job, but who, like everyone else, Hook seems to have had a certain resentment of. And one of the most memorable, <laughs> very short passages in, the, um, in this new document is where Hook comments on a well, relatively well-known work by Boyle, his General Heads for the Natural History of a Country, which was read out at the Royal Society in 1666, and Hook writes, stolen from me. <laughs> I think on that note, I should pass over to, to Felix Pryor, who's going to tell you a bit more about the manuscript. Um, hello. I'm sorry to um, be hijacking this distinguished gathering. I'm, uh, I'm a very new convert to the Hook Church. Um, and uh, I, I'm really not very qualified, um, apart from the fact that uh, last September I uh, drifted into the office at Bonhams, where I'm a sort of time to time I act as consultant, sat down uh, at, at my desk and reached the shelf behind me, and there was this manuscript, and uh, opened it out, and I think the, the first words that hit my eyes were... Um, the Vice President Sir Christopher Wren in the chair, and that's what Newton Boyle. Um, um, the uh, second thing I'd, I'd very much like to thank um, Michael for his, um, his his help when I was preparing the catalogue. I should add that it's uh, entirely my responsibility. He just corrected one or two howlers. Um, and one particular howler, which I've actually put his name to, which I'd like to. Uh, um, correct in public here, um, is I refer to um, Sir Hans Sloan's minutes, draft minutes, which are actually quite like these uh, in, the, in the British Library. And I say it's, manus um, it's Sloan Manuscript 3342. And in fact, as uh, Michael correctly told me originally, it's Manuscript 3341. Now, <laughs> um, 
the reason actually I bring this up, because I, I toddled along to the British Library, having written the cat, just sent the catalogue off to press and toddled along to the British Library last Tuesday to have a look at it. And um, I think this isn't generally known, but um, first of all, it's, as I said, very like this sort of Sloane's handwriting, his draft minutes, and it says entered in, in, I think, the same hand. I've got to check as this does. But quite a lot of the entries are by Robert Hooke. Um, and in fact, his, he, Hooke seems to have uh, taken over from Sloane and kept the minutes for him. Um, so uh, it's, uh, perhaps someone will write this up at some point. He's also added bits uh, where he read um, two letters, and so Hook himself has, you know, written out what he entered. Um, anyway, that, that's that, just a, a small discovery. Um, and uh, just uh, finally, um, I, I went into Barnum's today, and there were some interesting volumes, some funny drawings of London by... Robert Hooke? Yeah. No, I, I don't think they're any important. But, uh, anyway, sorry to go on. Um, but please, um, if you, uh, we've run out of catalogues. If anyone would like um, a catalogue, if you... Where's Matthew? Yeah. If, uh, Matthew Haley here, or myself, if you give your name and address, we'd very happily send you one. But otherwise, do try not to spill wine over it. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, thank you. And finally, um, John Smedley, Publishing Director of Ashgate, would like to say a few words. Indeed, just a very few words. Um, I'd say it's a pleasure on behalf of Ashgate to be able to publish a book like this that contributes so well to our list in history of science and early modern history. And secondly, to say thank you to the two editors. The work of editors putting together a volume is not always appreciated. It can be very hard work corralling the contributors and making them conform to the specifications that publishers demand. And they did it admirably, and thank you very much. And lastly, just to say that there are copies of the book itself if you've not seen them there, so please come and have a look and do purchase one. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.com dot ac dot uk